In his brief introduction to what to look for and expect in the Gospels, that's a long title, but a brief book, uh, Martin Luther, he writes how when most people read the Gospels, and by this we mean these biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that we see in the Bible, when most people read these Gospels, they, they read them and they see Jesus as an example. So they see his kindness and say, this is how I should be kind. They see his patience. They say, this is how I should be patient. And Martin Luther brilliantly draws out, he says, this is a good and great way to read the Gospels. It it shapes your life. It's good. You should do this. But he says, it's the smallest, least helpful way to read the Gospels. And actually, if this is the only way you read it, is Jesus as an example, it can lead you to be a hypocrite, can lead you into being judgmental, looking down on other people, which, to be honest, often happens in the church. He says the richest way to read these biographies of Jesus is to say every time you see Jesus going to someone or someone coming to Jesus, when you read that story, you see that as Jesus coming to you or you going to him. You place yourself in the story. Hear how Luther says this. He says, When you see how he works, Jesus, and how he helps everyone to whom he comes or who is brought to him, then rest assured that faith is accomplishing this and you and that he is offering your soul exactly the same sort of help and favor through the gospel. So he's saying as you see this picture of Jesus, it's not just a story of what happened several thousand years ago. Luther's saying you need to see this as a moment of God offering you the very same help to refresh your soul. Jesus is coming, speaking to you, you coming to him. So he says you should, I love it, he says you should see that God is giving you the gift of Jesus. The very person of Jesus is being given as a gift to you. So you should say, Jesus belongs to me by faith. That's the real richest way to read the Gospels. Honestly, this this has to be one of the most bold claims of Christianity, that Jesus is not, not just a teacher, but he is meant to be a living gift to us today. That, that all of Christianity, everything really rests on Jesus. His teaching, the transformation, any doctrines as good as they are, they're nothing without the person of Jesus. It's all about a loving attachment to him. That's what Christianity revolves around. And you have to see how different this is from other religions. For instance, if you love the teachings of Buddha and follow Buddha's teachings, but you don't know a ton about Buddha's life, that's not a big deal. You can still be a good Buddhist. If you follow the teachings of Muhammad, but don't have a loving attachment that he's the most important person in your life, you can still be a good Muslim. Or again, with Confucius, you can know his teachings but not know much about his life. That's okay. You can still be a good Confucian. This does not work with Christianity. (laughs) You can't just hear the teachings of Jesus and not have a love and receiving of the person of Jesus because you see again and again and again the teachings of Jesus revolve around himself. They keep coming back to Jesus. He's the central point. Christianity 
is about a loving attachment to a person, to a person named Jesus. That's the heart of it all there. This is why Jesus, when he's rebuking religious leaders in his day, he says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. But it is these very scriptures that testify about me and you refuse to come to me to have life. You refuse to come to me to have life. So Jesus knows it is essentially about him say all of this because this summer I want to start a new series with you all and just dive into looking at what it means to know Jesus, knowing Jesus. We're going to walk through this this summer. I just want to look at different aspects, elements of who Jesus is. want to look at his empathy. want to look at Jesus's wisdom, his holiness. Who is Jesus? Because everything rests on him. That's why we call him the cornerstone (laughs) and the foundation. If we don't have Christ, we have nothing in this. So who is Jesus? What's it mean to know him? But as we start today, I want to do this a little backwards. Because to be honest, receiving Jesus does not always feel like a gift. Sometimes there is challenge to following Jesus. More than that, there's offense to following Jesus. So If you're hanging with me, I want to look at the offensiveness of Jesus this morning. The offensiveness of Jesus. That's where Rhonda read that passage for us in Matthew 11. If you have a Bible, invite you, please open up there with us. If not, we'll have some of these verses on a slide for us. This really shows us again the offensiveness of Jesus. We read, first of all, that John is in prison. And this is John the Baptist. He is the cousin of Jesus. And he's important and prominent, not just because he's an extended family member of Jesus, but because he is a forerunner of Jesus. He's come to prepare the way. So he's had his own impressive teaching ministry out in the desert by the Jordan River, and he's been calling hundreds and thousands to repentance He's calling everybody, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, city, country, religious, non-religious, everybody, John's calling to repentance, and he's baptizing them, so preparing the way for the coming Messiah, because John knows it's ultimately not about him. He's preparing the way for one who is to come after him. That John says, whose sandals he's unworthy to untie. The most unclean part of a person, he's not even worthy to touch this person's feet who's coming after him. So beautifully, John is preparing the way for one who is to come. And when he sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. In other words, this is the one I've been preparing the way for. He says, this one must increase, I must decrease. And decrease, John certainly did. We hear later that John, because of his bold preaching and accusation against those who are in power, King Herod arrests John and throws him in prison. And it seems as he's hearing about Jesus flourishing and his ministry growing, doubt starts to take hold in John's heart about whether or not he really is the Messiah, the one who is to come. So he sends this message to Jesus and he says, 
are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? You got to get this. This is the same John that baptized thousands. And yet when it came to baptizing Jesus, he said, no, I need to be baptized by you. So confident was he that Jesus was the Messiah. Again, this is the same John that testified that he saw the Holy Spirit come down on Jesus like a dove. So if anybody should be confident that Jesus is the Messiah, it would be John. But it seems like doubt, disappointment, disillusionment have come in, and now John's not so sure. What's happened here? Jesus responds, and he says, let's give you the evidence, John. He says, the blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. That's the evidence, John, of who I am. That's, that's not a bad resume, is it? Like, that's pretty impressive. The, the dead are raised, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the blind see. These are inescapably the work of God. You don't do these things unless the power of God is with you, on you. You are the Messiah, Jesus. So why is it that John is confused here? What's frustrating him? There's something missing in what Jesus is saying, something that he has purposefully left out. Jesus knows this, and John would have known this, and we see it in Isaiah chapter 61. This is a passage that was often used to point to the coming Messiah that Jesus himself used to describe his ministry. It says this in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted. Does this sound familiar? It's exactly what Jesus was just saying he has come to do, that he is in fact doing. I am preaching good news to the poor. I am binding up the broken. I'm bringing healing. Jesus stops here, but Isaiah keeps going. It says to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for those who are in prison, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So yes, Jesus, you're bringing the healing and renewal, but where's the vengeance and the judgment? Even more on John's heart, who is in prison? Jesus, where's the release from darkness for those who are in prison? Where's the proclamation of deliverance? Why aren't you rising up and bringing judgment? We know in John's own preaching and preparing of the way, he said this Messiah, he would come with this image of a winnowing fork in his hand, that he would clear the threshing floor, he'd burn up the chaff. These were common images in their day of judgment, of this uprising to overthrow the oppressors. So John's been looking forward for the oppressive Romans to be overthrown. It's the end of their day. The Messiah will come and will deliver the downtrodden people of Israel. And he's eager for this justice. Jesus wears the judgment. Jesus wears your justice. Why aren't you intervening on behalf of the oppressed, bringing deliverance and freedom for those in darkness? And this is why Jesus adds at the end of this passage, verse 6, Blessed is the one 
who does not stumble (laughs) on account of me. Another version puts it this way, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. I think Jesus knows that for every single one of us, including John the Baptist, there's always potential for us to be offended by him. He would not say this if he did not know. It would be difficult for us to not stumble, to trip, to be offended by him. He knew there would be things he would say and do that would not fit our preferences nor our timeline. So blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We have to press through our offense to see the heart of Jesus to truly understand who he is and why he has come and the way he views things for us to enter into his blessedness. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So this morning, I wanna just explore a little bit what are some of the places that we might be offended by Jesus that we need to press through and view a bit more deeply. This is clearly not just John the Baptist, but we have our own places. This is true of every generation and time. Each generation has new things that they are offended at by Jesus. What one generation is offended by often recedes and is replaced by a new offense in another generation. And sometimes these are even contradictory and against one another. So what we liked about Jesus before, now we might be offended by. Uh, For instance, we see this with John the Baptist. His struggle is that Jesus is not bringing the judgment he's longing for. Jesus, where's the violent uprising against the Romans? Where is your justice? That's what I'm looking for. And to be honest, this is the exact opposite offense for many people in our modern Western world. Because we see in other places, Jesus does speak into there is a coming judgment. And we struggle with these passages in our modern Western world. Jesus is pretty blunt about sin and hell and coming judgment. And when we read these things, we're offended and put off by them. We stumble over them. So what John wanted much more of, we want much less of here in the West. Do you see this? And this mutual disappointment with Jesus With John on one side, us on the other, and Jesus in the middle should caution us that perhaps our cultural way of viewing things might be a bit off and that we need this correction by Jesus. For instance, there's a great writer, a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf. He teaches at Yale University. He wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And in this book, Miroslav Volf talks about how many in the West believe that there's a God of love, but they do not believe that this God of love brings judgment. These two ideas seem to contradict one another. So we believe in a God of love, but not in a God of judgment. And even more than that, we often think believing in a God of judgment will often lead people into their own human violence. So we believe human nonviolence, follow me, human nonviolence is encouraged by not believing in a God of judgment. That's what many in the West believe. However, Wolf says it's actually the exact opposite. Wolf, who is a survivor of genocide in Croatia, speaks into this really brutally and brilliantly. And he says, gives us a thought experiment I have here for us. Wolf says this. He says, but imagine 
speaking to people as I have. This is hard to read, to be honest with you. This is a difficult passage. Whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit, you point to them, we should not retaliate. Why not? Again, I just want to acknowledge Wolf is speaking from his own experience of people experiencing horrific atrocities. And when they have been in these horrible moments of injustice, what would you say to them to encourage them not to retaliate? How do you break the cycle of human revenge and our violence that naturally flows out of our hearts? It says, what would you say to people? Would you tell them that God's not a God of judgment? That he's not coming with justice and wrath? Wolf goes on, he says, I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. God's holy, distinct, the only one that will wield it with true justice. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. This is tough for us in our modern West, but hear this. This is a heavy (laughs) place to go. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human violence is not is a result of a God who refuses to judge. Again, the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence, that we won't hurt one another, is a result of believing in a God who refuses to judge. In a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, this idea will invariably die, Wolf says. When you really enter into a place where there is overwhelming oppression and injustice, when you see people that have gone through horrific tragedies and you see their thirst for vengeance, it's actually the most comforting thing to speak. There is a God who will one day bring justice. There is a God who sees your suffering and will one day come to set all things straight. This is why you can let go of your longing for revenge. This is why you can let go of your violence because we believe there's one who's perfectly just that will actually come and do this correctly. It relieves the heart. So Wolf, again, he draws out here, if God were not angry at injustice and deception, and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. Do you see this? It's hard for us to sit in, but do you see this? Again, in our modern Western culture, there's a reaction to, understandably, a God of judgment, but I think Wolf is right. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for this, that we've been so distanced from often oppression, and we're in a place of power, that we've been distanced from suffering in many ways, that we've become desensitized to the need for God to bring justice and a longing for this that you see elsewhere in scripture. So those places that make us uncomfortable, that we trip over and stumble in the teaching of Jesus, we might want to reshape Jesus and fashion him into our image that fit what we like, but those very elements that we change about Jesus might be the very elements we most need to hear from him. You follow this. So we have our cultural moments that we struggle with, but I think we also see this cultural struggle becoming really apparent in our politics today. Don't get nervous. (laughs) Stay with me, right? I did bring up the word politics. We talked about this a year ago in a series called The Kingdom of God, and we looked about how neither political party 
captures the kingdom of God. Neither one is large enough to capture God's goodness and his ways of doing things. Both want to claim Jesus and reshape him in their own image, in their own ways, but neither political party, hear me, is large enough to capture the kingdom of God. So we want to speak into every area of life, even in politics, not because we want to be political. That's not the aim. It's because the kingdom of God speaks into every area of life. And sometimes that grates against our political ideology. You hear that? <laughs> We're going to lean in a little bit here. So sometimes this grates against the way we view things politically. Dr. Larry Hurtado, he wrote a book called Destroyer of Gods, and he draws out how the early church was very different from Roman society. And the early church, based on the teachings of Jesus, lived a very different way, challenged the viewpoint of Roman society in its day. And he lists five major things that dis, uh, made Christians distinct in what they believed and how they lived. Let me just walk through these five for you. First of all, it says that Christians had a deep value for diversity across racial and ethnic lines. This was very different in the Roman world. You did not see barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, sharing bread and communion together. You didn't see Jew and Gentile calling themselves a part of the same body. This did not happen in the Roman world. There was a deep value of diversity and inclusion in the early church because of the teachings of Jesus. Secondly, we see the early church also spread across socioeconomic lines. The rich and the poor seated right next to one another, valued in the same way. More than that, that Christians would be taking care, not just of the Christian poor, but of all the poor. And there was a value that the rich should be giving up what they have to take care of those who had little. This honestly makes us uncomfortable in certain passages of what we read in the New Testament about wealth and sharing in the early church. I think it calls to agree my own materialism out. There was a deep value for crossing the socioeconomic divide. Thirdly, the early church was also a staunch opponent of abortion and infanticide. It was a fairly common practice for unwanted infants to be abandoned in Roman society. They did not see value to their life. And Christians quickly became known for taking on infants that were not their own. I will take on the obligation and the difficulty of raising this child because I see their value. This was entirely different in the Christian church. Fourthly, also in marriage, there's a unique view of marriage and sexuality in the church. In the early church, they held men to the same sexual standard they held wives to. Roman society had different values there, but the church held men and women equally to the same faithful standard. It was also seen that marriage was between one man and one woman in the early church. Fifth, they also had a value for nonviolence personally and politically. We don't really often see this, but that was a value in the early church based on the teachings of Jesus. There's a pastor in Portland named John Mark Comer. And he says, if you try to map these five features onto our modern American politics, what you find is the first two really appeal to more liberal people. The second two appeal to more conservative people. And the fifth one does not jive with either party. You see this. It makes both parties feel a little uncomfortable. He says, again, because the kingdom of God cannot be captured by either party. 
And both are tempted to remake Jesus in their own image, to fashion and to claim him, but we often want to silence elements of Jesus that we stumble over, that offend us, that we want to change those areas. But again, if we are changing the places of Jesus' teaching that most stretch us, we might be missing out on the very teaching we most need to hear the area that we need to be stretched in, that again, Jesus is in the middle of this disappointment on both sides. That should clue us in and make us pause that perhaps there's something going on in our cultural way of viewing things that we need to step back and look at again and take in Jesus' word one more time. It's helpful, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, actually just recently passed away which is, yeah, very sad. I love Tim Keller. You hear me reference him just about every other week. Um, But Tim Keller often pointed out how we should expect, it's really insightful, we should expect this kind of offense. If there really is a God who made all things, whose ways are truly above our own, whose thinking is far beyond us, should we not expect to be surprised and shocked at times by this God? If there really is a God who's holy, and distinct, and different from our ways, who's calling us to his beautiful standard, wouldn't we expect that at times we find what he calls us to, to be difficult, to rub us the wrong way, to not be our ways? So he says, you should expect there to be this offense. And if you have a God that fits exactly all your cultural preferences and ideas, you might not have the true God at all, but a figment of your own imagination. You you might have been creating your own idea rather than following what might be offensive to you, what the true God has to say. So we should expect this offense. So culturally, we see this in our politics, but I want to wrap up here just looking one more time that there's also ways that offend people everywhere all the time. Not just from culture to culture, but there's things that Jesus said that should be offensive to every single one of us at first. What I mean here is even this in verse 6. Did you notice? Jesus says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Don't you find even this sentence just a bit offensive? (laughs) That Jesus is making blessedness about how we respond to him. Like the ego Jesus here is a little daunting. That you're saying blessedness, joy, life, peace really comes from how we think and respond to you. That's incredible, Jesus. And we know if you've looked at the Gospels, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Look at this from Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, just a few verses earlier than where we're at. Jesus says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me (laughs) is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He's saying that he should be the primary affection in every single one of our lives. That's absolutely insane. That he should be the dominant attachment for every person. And if he's not, you're missing it. Or again, look at what he says in John chapter 7, 37, when he's in the midst of the temple, this massive celebration, thousands of Jews from all over the country coming to celebrate God's provision for them in the desert, providing water and everything else. Jesus stands up in a loud voice among thousands and he cries out, whoever believes in me, As scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. If you're there hearing that that day, some part of you has to pause and just say, hey, you just said all of scripture is testifying about you 
And I have to believe in you for life to be in my inner being. Who, who do you think you are, Jesus? That I must believe in you for life and for blessedness. Again, you will never find this with the teachings of Buddha. Buddha will never say that I am the center of life. You never find Muhammad saying, I must be the main loving attachment of your life. Confucius never calls us to make him the main priority. This is entirely unique to Jesus and overwhelming. So why is Jesus always making himself the center? Why is Jesus always in his teaching saying, I'm the most important thing and must be valued in your life? We see that Jesus, hear me, Jesus is making it impossible for us to merely make him a teacher. We have to see that Jesus is not just someone who's come to teach us about life. He is the very God who has come to bring us back to life. You see this? That Jesus is not just a philosopher who said, here's some great things to do, but rather he is the author of life who's come to renew us. That he's not just a prophet who said, hey, here's the way to God. He is himself the creator God who has come to reclaim his creation. That's why we see such audacity in his words. That's why we see him making everything about himself. This does not make sense unless Jesus is not a mere person, unless he's not a mere teacher, unless he's the creator who's shown up in skin and flesh and bones and is saying, I'm the one that you've been made for. I'm the one you must love most, and I'm here to show you life and to redeem you. Do you see this? So again, we should pause in the moments when we're rubbed the wrong way by Jesus, when we're offended by him, because that's often the place we most need to hear him. Let's not fashion a Jesus that fits our preferences, but let's have the audacity maybe to look at what the word says and see if we're missing something in our perception of how the world works. So I say this, continue to press in through your offense. Where are you stumbling? Where are you being challenged by Jesus? This could be in a cultural view. This could just be in your very life right now. There's things happening that you do not understand, that you are struggling with, and it feels like, God, are you ever going to show up? You say you care about us, but I do not see you in my life. You feel full of doubt, disillusionment, disappointment. God, what are you doing? I call you again, press through your disillusionment and offense and see the heart of Jesus and who he truly is. I'm going to invite our band up to, to worship right now, but just want to share one more thought with you in this as we do this. I want us to continue to press through and not stop in our offense because we have this good news that Jesus did not stop and he pressed through my offense and through your offense. When I think about the life of Jesus and what he experienced, he was betrayed by a friend with a kiss. I'd find that offensive, but he didn't stop Jesus. That Jesus was questioned by the religious authorities with scorn, looking at him, how could you possibly be the Messiah who you say you are? But Jesus did not stop, was not offended. When Jesus is condemned by a crowd crowd that just days before were singing his praises, Jesus was not offended and he did not stop when he's on the road to his own crucifixion and he's being scorned and he's being clothed with a robe, saying, here's the king of the Jews, we don't actually think you are. Jesus was not offended and he did not stop. When he's nailed to a cross and he's lifted up and again, the people are mocking him and mocking him and mocking him, Jesus was not offended and he did not stop. And when the offenses that we had 
that were laid on him, when my iniquity, when my sin, when my uncleanness was laid on Jesus, he did not stop. But he persevered out of the joy set before him that you and I would be his. So he pressed through our offense to have us, to say, you will be mine, that I would know you and you would know me. So again, seeing how Jesus did not stop, but pressed through our and carried our offenses, knowing by his stripes we would be healed, let us press through the places we don't understand. Let us press through the places we stumble and see his goodness. So in this again, would you stand and worship with us?